near the Ghostbusters. I'm Spencer. He's Tracy. I'm Kong. We're the Ghostbusters. We're clever, courageous, and strong. Your sleep has been haunted with whispers and rattlings. Your blood has been curdled. We know what to do. Your skin has the creepies. I wonder what's happening. You're safe in our hands. We will take care of you. We're the Ghostbusters. Welcome to Worth Watching Guest Choice, where a guest chooses a movie and we talk about it. Today's movie is Ghostbusters, and between the time when our guest chose Ghostbusters and this recording, the director Ivan Reitman unfortunately died. So we're going to talk about him a bit as well. I'm your host, a man who admits to enjoying the occasional ghostly tryst. My co-host is Guy, who likes driving the Ecto-1, mostly so he can honk the horn. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And our guest today is the psychologist Down Under, the co-host of the popular Decoding the Gurus podcast, Matt Brown. Hello, Matt. G'day, Ron. G'day, Guy. <laughs> G'day. <laughs> so before we do anything else, why don't you tell us a bit about your podcast? Oh, the podcast. Yes. Yeah, so Decoding the Gurus, we decode these secular gurus, these online figures that uh, seem to um, dispense wisdom and hot takes on all kinds of things, and we try to figure out the the good ones and the bad ones, and um, look at the rhetorical tricks that they sometimes employ. So we cover all kinds of people from some of my intellectual heroes, and I can't remember who they are right now because I've gone blanking. <laughs> <laughs> but but to to some of the you know big culture war type type names you tend to see in the news today. So yeah, it's it's been good fun. It's been good fun. Hmm. Well, and I think between your career and that podcast, there's actually a lot of application to our movie today if you think about it oh, so yeah. we'll ex explore that a little bit perhaps yeah. Uh, yeah. but speaking of which so why did you choose ghostbusters as your movie yes well i think i think the temptation with something like this is to choose some kind of artsy fartsy deep and meaningful you know <laughs> lots of scenes of people staring intently into the middle distance sort of thing <laughs> And, uh, and I watched a movie like that recently and, uh, we talked about it with very bad wizards and I'm blanking on what it's called now too. Oh, the master. Yeah, all right. So, so, so the master, Philip Singer Hoffman, uh, very sadly passed away. Amazing actor, very interesting movie about, you know, this sort of Scientology type figure, beautifully shot. The cast is amazing. The dialogue is amazing. It's full of interesting ideas, but it's just not a fun movie. It's just not <laughs> fun to watch. Right. I, I watched huh. it for the second time and I was like, oh, uh, like anyway. So Ghostbusters is like the opposite of that. Like it is just, it's just a rip snorter of a movie and it is amazingly <laughs> put together, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just because it's a comedy, just because it's, you know, about ghosts or whatever doesn't mean, uh, in my opinion, that it's, you know, uh, like it, it could still, it, it is, it does what it aims to do, which is to, get the audience to have a really good time and i, I respect that oh yeah mm -hmm. I, I i guess the other thing too is that it's what was it done 1989 i think was when it came out or 1984 1984 and you know i was what you know eight eight nine ten years old sort of around that time so it really yeah so i sort of grew up with it i must have watched it mm -hmm. like must have watched it half a dozen times at least right right guy what's your uh background with it <laughs> I've been watching it for a long time. I think I may have seen it when it was in the theater, but I've I've seen it several times since then. Uh, I've also 
played Ghostbusters the video game a few times. Oh, me and, too. Uh, me too. Oh, yeah. And I've read the rule book for uh, the Ghostbusters role-playing <laughs> game, though I never actually played it with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and yeah, for me, I mean, this is just one of those films that I couldn't even tell you how many times I've seen it. I don't even know. I mean, it's just infused mm. throughout my history. By the way, a few years ago, I bought the box set and uh, got this ah. uh, uh, as part of it. So, uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think we're all fans, <laughs> fair to say. Mm. Uh, now, before we get to the movie itself, let's talk about the ghost in the room. Uh, Ivan Reitman, he died at 75. And, you know, I was going back and looking through his history and, oh, my God, you know, so he started out by producing the magic show with Doug Henning. And I used to be an amateur magician for much of my life. And that was pretty amazing. And it turns out one of the things he learned in the magic show actually used in this movie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Can get to that at some point. But then, you know, he produced Animal House. He directed Meatball Stripes, you know, Ghostbusters, Twin, Kindergarten Cop, Dave. What leaps out there? Were any of these as, you know, part of your childhood as Ghostbusters or? Yeah, not not to the same degree, I would say. Yeah, like mm. I've, I've watched and enjoyed many of those movies. But yeah, Ghostbusters stands out somehow. Right. It, it, like, it's so, t it's just, I mean, perhaps I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but <laughs> like, it's, it, it's almost flawless. Like, it's so well put together. Mm. I was reading something about how him and the other script writers, Dan Aykroyd was, was conceived mm. in writing it too. And, you know, they, I was reading about the, the the process of you know writing these drafts and sending drafts to each other, and then they'd cross a whole bunch of stuff out, and these mm -hmm. scenes would get deleted. And you can I appreciate that process of of to come up with a really honed, pared down script that is just tight and just funny mm -hmm. from beginning to end takes just a massive amount of work. And I do get the feeling I don't want to cast aspersions on any particular movie, but <laughs> in recent years, shall we say, I feel like not as much effort or something. There's some magic missing from the writing. Um, and, you know, a movie needs that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So for me, I mean, Meatballs, that's not like, I, I may have seen it way back then, but it was just, again, part of the culture of people who were my age at the time. Stripes was huge. And I think playing into what you're talking about, a lot of people, no matter what they think about Stripes, can point to flaws in the script, you know, especially like the last half of the film. So it'll be, oh, I loved this movie, but yeah, it kind of falls apart when you watch it today, right? Where where I think, as you're saying, you know, Ghostbusters just totally stands up. Yeah, it's actually, it's it's a fun exercise, isn't it? To try to, to, try to find flaws in Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I'm sure we could, I mean, it's got, there's got to be some flaws, but it's not easy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, you know, the, when I watched it recently, you know, to prepare for today, it had been probably a couple of years since the last time I had seen it. And since, you know, in the meantime, I've been doing this podcast, which I think has made me a little bit more sensitive to things like, you know, story structure and, you know, all mm -hmm. the little details. And uh, mm -hmm. I was very impressed on rewatching it at just how well it flowed throughout mm -hmm. the whole thing. Yeah, actually, that was the thing that hit me as well, which is the pacing. Yeah, and, and the flow, as you say, like it just, like it just moves along. You know, it just picks you up at the beginning, and then duh, 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 like it doesn't stop moving <laughs> until it gets to the end. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, uh, you know, to so close out with Ivan Reitman, you know, I, it seems like 
directors have sometimes, I don't know, a 10-year, maybe if they're really lucky, a 20-year period, but usually somewhere around 10 years, where they're just in sync with the culture and everything they do fits. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, they get out of sync and they can't get back, right? So, mm -hmm. um, oh, what's his name? He did Roger Rabbit. Zemeckis? Yeah, it? Zemeckis did, you know, an amazing series of films that were huge hits. And now he just has kind of gone off the rails and mm -hmm. nobody really watches his films anymore. You know? yeah. <laughs> and kind of similarly, you know, he had Meatball Stripes, Ghostbusters, and a bunch of other things. And then, you know, the last number of films he did over the years didn't really yeah. hit in the same way. Now you're mm -hmm. right. There's a there's a zeitgeist and a and a uh, like like this is really obvious with English comedy, right? So you can take people like Rowan Atkinson, for instance. So he was mm -hmm. he was Mr. Bean and, and other mm -hmm. characters. Blackadder, yep. yeah, Blackadder, yeah. And you know, for a period there, that was that was it. That was hitting the you know, it had its finger on the pulse. It was great, yeah, but. This, the, 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 the times moved on and the style of comedy that the people appreciated moved on. And, and that kind of humor just was no longer, it was just considered passe. And, but, but that was Rowan Atkinson's style. It wasn't a bad style. It was just, just localized <laughs> to that, to, to mm. that, to that time period. And now we have this sort of, it's hard, it's, it's a difficult thing to describe, isn't it? But comedy has a, has a culture. They're probably, mm. uh, and, and fa a fashion that probably lasts like 15 years or so before the next one comes along. Mm -hmm. Hey, well, RIP, uh, Mr. Reitman. <laughs> so yeah. uh, let's move into the movie. Obviously, we're, um, we keep diving into it here. So, you know, Dan Aykroyd, as you mentioned, he was originally working on this script as a vehicle for him and Jim Belushi, and then <laughs> Jim Belushi rudely went and died. Mm. And... The thing for Aykroyd, and this is really interesting to me, is the concepts in this movie, to him, this was like a documentary. I mean, he believes all this stuff, and he will go on and on about it, when, you know, and there, there's a thing for me, which is like, I think about Arthur Conan Doyle, because he really influenced this film. He wrote Sherlock Holmes and became rich and famous from doing that, but then he got obsessed with you know, the other world, <laughs> the paranormal, mm -hmm. the occult, and they really play up things in here. Like we see the ectoplasm while well, he got obsessed with ectoplasm. He'd write all these articles about the, the structure of ectoplasm and you know, really? what it was and all this. And what happened was people would open the magazine expecting another Sherlock Holmes story and they would get a 50 page treatise on ectoplasm <laughs> and he just like ruined his career because he became so obsessed with this stuff. And mm. I wonder, I mean, with Aykroyd, obviously it helped him create this great movie, but I also have to wonder how much more he maybe could have done if he wasn't spending all his time with that. Although, you know, he made a vodka company and that seems to be doing well. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he made nothing but trouble, which uh, it is not universally acclaimed, but I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did not know that. I didn't know that Dan Aykroyd was obsessed with, Yep, be became obsessed with that. So that started around the time of... No, it was long, this, was, this was the result of his lifelong passion. I this. see. I see. Yeah, he, he believes in everything that's in here. When you watch a behind-the-scenes documentary, he'll just start going off on all these... I mean, literally around the time of Doyle, there were all these... That's when spiritualism 
yeah. kicked in. I think it was post-World War One. Basically, so many people had died and so many people wanted to reconnect with their loved one, especially because they died on a battlefield somewhere mm. and they didn't get to bury them or, or see them. And spiritualism became a way to connect yeah. with those people. And so you had like these girls who made up these photos of fairies, if you've ever seen that, mm-hmm. or, you know, other ones who could, you know, make the sounds of ghosts in the room or whatever. And these have been thoroughly debunked over the years, but Ackroyd still believes in all of it. <laughs> so yeah. Well, you know, that's, mm. that's interesting. It really, cause yeah. you'd think that would get in the way of making a good comedy. I know. Like a good, I know. Yeah. But apparently not. So, yeah. And, and so speaking of which, I mean, the first third of the film is really just I- introductions and normally that's really tough, right? I mean, when you're trying to introduce all these concepts and all these things, and as we've already talked about, they just do it so brilliantly. I mean, we just start out in this, you know, library with the, you know, the librarian mm-hmm. going down the shelves. And, and one of the things I love that now, if you tried to, if they did it from scratch now, they would never do it this way, right? Where you have these very simple effects, like these books start moving around mm-hmm. and these cards start coming Some out of the card catalog. And it's totally freaky. Yeah. It totally works. But now it would be like five layers of CGI and, you know, <laughs> yeah. 50,000 different things coming in. And it's like, no, it works because it makes it real. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, just something weird like a like a book moving or a little card sort of flying out. Like that's something that people can connect to something that they may have sort of experienced, right? Just something eerie, something odd, like a, a weird noise and a, a strange thing that shouldn't be there uh, or whatever, you know. But nobody has any personal contact with the kind of crazy special effects that they can create these days. So it, it feels very distancing and alienating. So. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, that scene at the beginning is a great way to introduce nuisance ghosts, (laughs) freaking people out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, then we go right into the theme song, so we get introduced to that, and that has its own history. Do you know about the uh, lawsuit for the theme song? I do not. Ah, well, I'll have to. um, So, unfortunately, I'm not set up to do this the right way, but here's the deal. This came out over the years. It took a long time for this to work out. When they... Did the temp track, you know, you always have a temp soundtrack for a movie that you can edit to until you have the actual music. Mm. They used Huey Lewis's I Want a New Drug for the song, and they tried to hire Huey Lewis and he turned them down. So then they hired Ray Parker and they gave him the footage with I Want a New Drug as uh, the temp track. That's I want a new drug. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. That sounds familiar. <laughs> now that latter portion there, if I gave you a blind test of which song am I playing right now? I'm not sure he could pass. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he sued, and they sued back and forth, and, you know, it was pretty funny. Hmm. <laughs> it's tricky, isn't it? But it was a great theme song, and mm-hmm. it was so good at marketing the movie, they estimated it added about $20 million mm-hmm. to, you know, the bottom line of the movie. Then we move into what I think is one of the best character introductions ever, type introductions. So, you know, Bill Murray, as Peter Venkman, is giving a test, an ESP test with an interesting twist, right? When you get the card wrong, 
he zaps you, except uh, there's a guy and a woman, and he's interested in the woman, so he keeps zapping yeah. the guy, even as the guy... Actually, the funny thing here is what you, what you learn, if you pay attention carefully, is he says what he's studying is the effect of negative feedback on psychic abilities, and he actually starts to prove that it works because he keeps zapping this guy, and the guy starts <laughs> to become more accurate. Yeah. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, as a psychologist, Matt, what are the ethics of a test like this? Well, that's what's so cool about this scene. Like, it's, it's just, it's great on so many levels. It's, it's obviously totally unethical, right? So, <laughs> you know, with, with, with ethics, they, they take into account not only, like, potential harm to the participants, but also, like, is the, is the research... Is it frivolous? Is it just, you know, you know, you just, if you're just doing something for fun, then that counts against you. Now, this is kind of, this has got both, right? <laughs> We're never making fast ethics thing. And, you know, there's, you know, there's a long history of people, uh, of, you know, parapsychology. You know, there's this, it's sort of this gray zone. It just shades out from kind of quasi legitimate to totally flaky, but it's, it's, you know, it's been going on, you know. <laughs> and it's such a great character, and it's so edgy too, because you know Venkman is introduced as a complete sleaze, and mm. and, and a sadist, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, that's edgy, right? And that doesn't, yeah, you know, he's he's obviously you know hugely charismatic, one of the one of the main heroes of the of the movie. Everyone's rooting for Venkman, but you know, so it's so cool to introduce him like that. It's it's edgy, you know. Um, we don't we don't see that all the time these days. And it's kind of a kind of a parody of a famous experiment. Uh, I don't remember the exact name. I think it was called the prison experiment. Or, yeah, you know, the people mm. actually were instructed to shock other people. Mm. Yeah, and uh, so it's kind of a commentary on that too. Sorry, that's the Milford one. Or this, the prison one's different. The shocking one, I think, is the Milford. Anyway, the yeah, Milford. yeah, that yeah, there was there was there was that. There was the golden era of unethical <laughs> reason. <laughs> and I mean, we don't have time today to get into it, but I'll argue with both actually that the prison experiment where they had people act as prisoners and and guards and the shocking that there's a lot of BS <laughs> to those and mm -hmm. that they've been way, way overhyped, you know. It's, it's, oh, so, yeah. I mean, it really fits Ooh. into this movie because <laughs> in a lot of ways mm -hmm. they were performance pieces designed yeah. to, you know, interest the public. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, that seems to be, that's what I've heard too, that they've almost largely been debunked, perhaps. Um, <laughs> hard to tell without kind of replicating and stuff like that, which we cannot do. Right. Because, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, this is a brilliant, I mean, it probably take about two minutes and you know everything you need to know about the character for the entire rest of the film, <laughs> pretty much. Yep. <laughs> you know, then Dan Aykroyd comes in because he wants them to go check out the library. And so at the library, we see, you know, Dan and Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. And, the, and again, just instantly you understand these characters. I mean, Ramis yeah. is this, you know, egghead, mm. unemotional he's, he's, he's very, guy. Yeah. yeah. And Ray's very earnest. And and so it's basically those two nerds, right? And well, one of them is a super nerd. <laughs> Eichmann is a super nerd. Uh, well, where's that wonderful line where he introduces it? I mean, sorry, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but there's so many great quotes in the movie. Like, hundred, yeah. it's probably a hundred mm. great quotes, but you know, when he introduces he, himself, I collect slimes and molds, or molds something like that. and fungus. Yeah. <laughs> I collect slimes, molds, and fungus. <laughs> And that's what's, you know, when there's a woman trying to come on to him and part of the, you know, that little subplot in the movie where the receptionist is really hot for him and he just can't even engage it, with that. It's right? just he totally just, oblivious. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's, it's endearing. So, and, you know, again, it, it works on these different levels. Like, you, you kind of feel like you know characters like this at, 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 at university staff. You know, like they're kind of all goofballs, you know, in, in different <laughs> ways. But Venkman is kind of like the, you know, the cool professor, you know, the professor will sit mm-hmm. on the desk and charm the students <laughs> and, you know, all of that stuff. And and then you've got these other two. So, yeah, they, like they all, even though they're just comedic characters, they, they feel kind of familiar to you as well. Oh, yeah. And I like in this scene where they're investigating the library, uh, they've got a joke in there that I had forgotten about, and it's not its not like a knee slapper, but it's just its an example of the kind of little things they put throughout the movie that are just understated, and they didn't intend it for, for it to get a huge laugh, but it's, yep. it's there, it's where they're observing these un- unusually tall stacks of books in the middle of the <laughs> aisles, and Venkman says that, uh, no human being would stack books like this. And she's obviously being sarcastic that he's not impressed at all. I know. And yeah, it's so funny. So funny. Like, it's almost funnier that it doesn't have a, a kind of gag that will, you know, um, make you laugh out loud. It's just because it's, it's just so deadpan and just so good. <laughs> and the other thing that, uh, you know, just talking about how brilliantly everything is introduced in here, they show you that these guys don't yet know what they're doing just, but it's in the middle of all these jokes and action that, you know, it just, it's there. You don't realize even that what you're being told is these guys don't yet know how to catch ghosts, right? <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and it is really embarrassing because they like, okay, oh, they actually see a ghost. Now what do we do? And Ackroyd, <laughs> you know, sorry, I always use the, the actor names because I just know them so well here, but you know, mm-hmm. Ackroyd's like, I know, and he just sort of runs up to it, and then, they, then you know, they get freaked out and run out of the, the library and, you know, have no yeah, idea yeah. what to do. <laughs> yeah, total, total amateur hour, yeah. Now, you're right, you're getting, you're getting given so much information, like, it's not until you actually make a concerted effort that you can stop getting distracted by all the funny one-liners and it just, just, just the entertainment that's going on, and you realize that in the movie, they're actually... They're actually telling you a lot, right? They're introducing mm-hmm. you to a huge amount of stuff in every scene that you kind of need to know in order to follow along with the movie. But you're too busy mm-hmm. just sort of enjoying enjoying the character roles and and the, the funny dialogue that you you know it'll, it you don't even know you're getting explained to in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and related to that, you know, when they get back to the university, instantly the next plot point, they're getting kicked out. You know, yep. so there's not, they have, they don't have five minutes to talk about what they just went through. No. It's just, oh, now we're getting kicked out. And now what do we do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, this is my favorite line, having spent, you know, my career in, in corporate oh, America. I know what from it is. Akron. I know what it is. <laughs> I've worked in the us. private sector. They expect results. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of very knowing, isn't it? It's kind of like you're, you're kind of, you're in on the joke. You know, we all know, we all know the kind of thing that they're referring to here like yeah you're right they're like these hopeless like they're having a go at being these ghost catchers which they're complete amateurs at but they're also terrible at being academics right they've got no idea they're just sort of faff around and um now i assume i mean they they don't show it to us at all but i assume they would have to be teaching classes or having students or would they be able to have gotten away without that with the research or it's not. It's not shown, but I, I, I suspect they probably would have been. Yeah, that would have been implicit. Yeah, yeah. But um, 
But, you know, they're kind of like that they might have gotten a little bit of funding from some cranky kind of source and they've sort of spun it out for a while, but they're kind of, you know, they're on the end of their leash, you know, they're running out of, <laughs> they, they, and, and yeah, we see them getting, getting kicked out and they've got to figure out um, what to do with themselves. Although we will eventually find out that whatever they've been doing at the university, they actually have some interesting and useful theories about uh, how the spirit realm works. You know, I mean, yeah. they, they have ideas that when they get the money to implement them turn out to be actually functioning well, ideas. And yeah. it's like literally one line, but Harold Ramis basically says, we got the data we needed from this library thing to kind of prove that our theory will work. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We, there's no idea of what data they collected or <laughs> what that was, but again, they don't, and we'll see, I mean, just to jump ahead of here a bit, but one of the choices they made in the movie, which is interesting and again, unusual, I think, is there is zero time on them developing this technology. They developed some very sophisticated technology to capture these ghosts. And it's totally off screen and not explained at all. And in fact, that becomes part of the humor. They're almost figuring out how this stuff works, you know, as they start yeah. using it. Right? So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And how does it go? Um, why be nervous? Each of us is carrying an unlicensed <laughs> nuclear accelerator on our backs. I just think it was a huge insight in the script to realize it would be funnier to just have the technology and then make jokes about it than yeah. to spend five minutes with a montage of them developing and testing yeah. and all yeah. that stuff. Boring. Yeah. Boring. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I know. I just have to say like another example, um, like of like similar to guys of how just, it's so funny. Like when he says that about them, the unlicensed nuclear accelerators and they're all on the elevator, they kind of, they kind of sort of shift. Yeah, they right. shuffle over into the corner. Yeah. Yeah, like it's such a joke, obviously, because if one of those things blows up or something, that's not going to help you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, like, I mean, I think that's kind of what the underlying humorous premise of this, like in the real world. These guys are, are losers, right? They're, they're, they're frauds, they're, they're charlatans, they're, they're just faffing around at university and they're going to get kicked out and whatever. But the joke is, is that it's, it's real, right? The ghosts are <laughs> right, real. Right. And, and the stuff that they've been tinkering about with, which nobody understands, which everyone assumes that it's just total nonsense, is real, right? They've got nuclear freaking accelerators, you know. They've got this device that they strapped to Rick Moranis's head. Um, Venkman really is like a technical genius, you know. Um, um, <laughs> we don't know about. We don't know about. Um, oh, sorry. Am I getting no? I'm getting the that, names mixed up. Apologies. Yeah, I, I I meant to say. Um, be a Spengler, I think more. Spengler's a genius. Yeah, that's why he's the actor. Just a, so, he's just he's a, a, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, speaking of which also then, you know, as we continue our introductions, we get Sir Gurney Weaver and Rick Moranis. And again, just right up there with just such brilliant characterizations right out of the gate. First, by yeah. making Sir Gurney Weaver, the fact that she's in a symphony immediately defines her as more cultured than these jokers, right? Like she's a, you know, much higher class person. And especially that, you know, Bill Murray should have no right to, <laughs> you know be hitting on <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's right she's out of his league and also that she's not someone who would be into this stuff or interested right so they have to very quickly give her a motivation because she you know she meets rick moranis and and this is really funny because 
John Candy was supposed to play that role, but he was trying to figure out how to play it. And he started, you know, telling Ivan Reitman, oh, I'm going to be a German and I'm going to do this and that. And Ivan Reitman's like, no, you're not going to be a German. (laughs) So finally, he's like, this isn't working. You know, they were about ready to film. So he sent the script to Moranis. Moranis accepted in three hours and said, I know exactly what to do with this character. And mm. later on, he said, thank God John Candy turned this down because I just knew exactly what to do. And he wrote a lot of his own dialogue and, you know, just his whole nerdy, you know, accountant <laughs> character who holds, I love, you know, holds a party where he invites clients so that he can write the party off. You know? That's <laughs> so, right. That's right. It's so sad. And then, yeah, that's right. Spends his time at the party explaining that to guests. <laughs> yeah. I saved $23 on the salmon. <laughs> yeah, just, poor, yeah. He's such a great character. And Sigourney Weaver, like everyone loves Sigourney Weaver. Just, and she, just I mean, she's so, though, she's pretty cruel to him. I mean, you can understand why, but, you know, he's all, he's really, really interested in her. And there's a really funny part right in the beginning because she's just like, yeah, whatever, I got to go. And you understand that part. But there's a part where I think makes her a little crueler, which is she's about to go into her apartment and she needs to put her bag of groceries somewhere. So she shoves it in Rick Moranis's arms while she turns around and opens her door. Mm-hmm. And I, the reason I say that makes her, I think, a little bit cruel is like, oh, she's happy to use this guy for mm. her momentary need, you know? mm-hmm. but she's totally going to shine him on, not come to his party, you know, treat him like a non-entity. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She takes herself seriously. And it's good. Like, once again, the characters are a little bit edgy. You know what I mean? Like, she's not just this sort of bland kind of straight character that the rest of them can bounce off. She's got a little bit of edge uh, there, too. Hmm. And she really wanted this role. She was coming off of movies like Alien. So she's now famous around the world. You know, one of the most recognizable actors probably at that time. And she felt like people were overlooking her comedic abilities. So she actually agreed to audition for this film. An actor of her stature, auditioning is like, no, I don't audition. You just offer me the role, right? (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, But she was like, no, I'll audition. And she came up with the idea of them, um, her and Rick Moranis turning into the dogs at the end. And I've been writing and talked about her in his living room on his couch, you know, uh, doing the dog thing and howling. And it's just like, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like she, you know, she totally uh, was willing to put everything into it. So getting back to this whole thing. So we have this cultured, intelligent person and she sees on her TV, the ad for the Ghostbusters, you know, the really cheesy sort of used car salesman ad where they're like we're ready to believe you (laughs) we're the ghostbusters (laughs) and you know there's and she turns off the tv and there's no way she would ever be interested so they so they have to motivate her and we get another very low-tech solution to that but again really works well which you know these eggs on her counter start flipping out of the carton and boiling right there and again this is a very low tech but human thing everybody deals with eggs you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and, and it's I just think... so eerie like there's no like yeah it's clever yeah and i think in that same shot uh where where she has her bag of groceries next to the eggs there uh i think there's also a bag of state puffed marshmallows there yep. so there's a little oh. foreshadowing yeah nice yeah. nice something tells me i did not see this anywhere but something tells me that you know some marshmallow company didn't pony up for the uh you know the payment or whatever so <laughs> yeah, no their own. placement yeah <laughs> yeah 
Now then, you know, so we go from that's like she's like, what's going on here? Then she hears weird things in her fridge and she opens her fridge. Now here we do get, you know, the special effect thing right inside her fridge. We have a whole different universe, this huge building and some kind of huge dog and you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And she hears the name Zool. And, and so, so this does freak her out enough to go and check out the Ghostbusters, you know. So we've literally gone from probably 30 seconds earlier she saw the Ghostbusters ad to now she's yeah. walking into the Ghostbusters building you know, because she yeah. needs their help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, that's that kicks off the kind of more serious, I mean, you know, serious in, a, in scare quotes here, but that, <laughs> you know, the Zool and the, the entire dark universe that the, mm. the fridge is a portal to it, and obviously that, that comes to a climax. And, you know, that is meant to be kind of big deal. You know, dogs and cats mm-hmm. living together. <laughs> um, um, so, like, just coming, but just coming back to the point we made at the beginning, which is that, in many ways, this shouldn't work. You know, this <laughs> this this thing that's like a mixture of like a screwball comedy and science fictiony. Uh, you know, like, you know, it sounds right. weird saying horror, but it's meant to like and. And they do oh, have yeah, a whole ghosts, background yeah. there. I mean, if you pay attention to the film, they've got a whole structure of these gods and who's, you know, dealing with what and all the rest of this, which, but it, but it's very, like, you have to pay attention. They don't, you know, it's not like you need to know this stuff in order to enjoy the film, right? No, no. <laughs> we get this great thing where, where she's their very first customer and, you know, they decide that, uh, what, um, Ackroyd's going to check out whether her building has some structural things and Harold Ramis is going to look <laughs> into right. Zool. And then we get the great line where Bill Murray's like, I'm going to take her back and check her out. I mean, check out her apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, and he goes back there and just spends the entire time flirting with her and <laughs> pretending to do sciencey stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's got this not... little spray thing. He keeps spraying the air for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so i love i love how he really is a fraud you know like like he's he's got his two offsiders that are kind of the real thing but he's kind of a fraud you know he's he's playing along and we get his starting point with her because he puts the moves on her and gets totally rejected she's not interested (laughs) yeah it does not instill confidence in his ghost busting abilities right right Interesting thing here, again, I wouldn't necessarily expect this in terms of the script, because you kind of think like, okay, now she's going to be the focus. But actually, you know, they're back at their, the building they bought, they're having, they they spent the last of their money on a Chinese dinner. (laughs) They're really out of money. And then they get a call from this hotel that's having problems, right? So that becomes their first real job rather than hers. And you have the whole thing where they want to, you know, the hotel wants it handled discreetly. And of course, from the beginning, they kind of barge in. (laughs) Has anyone seen a ghost? (laughs) (laughs) And we have the whole introduction to all that. You know, you got your brilliant thing where uh, we've never seen the, you know, we've never seen the backpacks work before we already talked about the elevator stuff. (laughs) But you have this poor maid who comes down the hallway and they all blast at her with with these things. (laughs) Yeah, and the their backpacks are so destructive, so they 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 <laughs> smash the place to bits. <laughs> and then, you know, we get our first real ghost, Slimer. But <laughs> I don't know if they actually named him in this, but uh they became known as Slimer, that little uh, fat ghost. Mm. Uh yeah. And yeah. you know, chasing around and he slimes Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah. um, so you know, actually, if I I have to say personally, I didn't I don't love the Slimer ghost. 
Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked before about how hard it is to find a floor in this. Now, the, the, many people might not consider it a floor at all, but just for me personally, I I thought, yeah, it's a bit cheesy, you know, little goblin-y <laughs> type, <laughs> type ghost, you know. Yeah, that's fair. He's never, I've been sort of mostly indifferent to him. You know, I could take him or leave him. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. It was never my favorite part either, but I think marketing wise it did work out for the movie like they had this very recognizable thing yeah. that they that people could connect to and have a t-shirt of and all the rest of that it's it's different than say the the ghost in the library or something which you know wasn't going to yeah. connect that way with with the audience right yeah that's right it gives a concrete humorous ghost yeah because because the other ghosts are quite they're more like traditional ghosts and they're, they're kind of creepy yeah like the oh, yeah. Old, yeah. the old woman and stuff yeah well, again, we talked about, you know, because they have the technology and we know nothing about it, it's not until they use it, I think on the maid, actually, where then Harold Ramis drops this thing of, oh, don't cross the streams or all of the universe might be destroyed. <laughs> like Something that might have been helpful to mention, you know, earlier. <laughs> and of course, that sets, you know, then can come back at the end of the film to be a solution to things. So that's a, that's a great little thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this whole process of, you know, they're supposed to be discreet and they destroy the entire ballroom. <laughs> Slimer goes into the ballroom of the hotel, which they're hoping to use in a few minutes, and they've managed to destroy the entire thing. But they actually capture the ghost, so that's impressive. Yeah. We get our, uh, you know, one of the other Bill Murray lines, you know, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. <laughs> <laughs> This whole portion of the movie we've been talking about is what was added when Harold Ramis came on and they and Reitman and Ramis and Aykroyd started working together. Aykroyd started the movie here where there were already all sorts of ghosts all over the place. And in fact, the um, the Marshmallow Man at the end was one of like 50 giant monsters that he envisioned. So this was basically going to be this huge monster movie. And, mm. you know, all the little stuff we've been talking about wasn't in there until they revised the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was just budget. Like Ivan Reitman's like, we can't have 50 giant different you know, <laughs> monsters. It's not going to work. Yeah. You know? yeah, well, I'm glad they didn't. That would have been uh. distracting, I think. Yeah. Like. <laughs> the, the thing I think that I, that I like about Ackroyd's concept here is what we see is that for some reason, right at the point that they've started their business, you know, paranormal activity goes crazy. And it's happening all over the place. And they are now actually have so much business that, you know, they're completely exhausted and they're doing, you know, half a dozen of these things a day and working at night, et cetera. And mm. he, you know, Ackroyd thought of as these guys are like firefighters. They're just like, you know, yep. working class people doing this job and they have too much work to do. And <laughs> Yeah. 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 That's right. It's, it's cool. Isn't it? Like it very quickly goes from you know here's this mysterious phenomena or whatever to like they're like you know like vermin catchers you know they just look at us you know <laughs> you know he comes out ray comes out you know with a steaming smoking kind of thing they just called it you know chuck it in the it, it's yeah yeah but, yeah uh, and they're so busy they have to hire another guy and this is one of those you know i don't know i don't like to i try to think i don't like to bring in the woke stuff but it is uh you know unfortunate that then we get the you know the black ghostbuster right you know who's kind of the extra character and he gets some good lines at least and you know i think the actor got good stuff out of this but it's always unfortunate that that's got to be the oh let's add this person in just you know yeah it feels like it could be a little could have been a little bit tokenistic um yeah 
Although the uh, the actor is, is good, he's enjoyable to watch. Yeah. I think they just they brought him in and then they they underused him. You know, they could have yeah. uh, punched him up a little more. Yeah, that's right. He does he does well. Just but um, and and the lines this, some lines are pretty good, but yeah, felt a little bit tacked on. But um, yeah. yeah, so okay. could have been worse. <laughs> could have been worse. Could have been better. Yeah. I did like, though, that when he's initially being interviewed by the receptionist, she's like, you know, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? Do you believe in the other thing? And he's like, if there's a paycheck, I believe in it. <laughs> you believe in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I guess, I think, you know, the thing to remember, too, I guess, is that every, you know, like, scribble comedy needs some straight characters. Yeah, they need yeah. some reasonably uh, straight characters who is the normal person. That's true. He is the normal guy. Yeah, is the normal guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, to, to some extent, Sigourney Weaver is the normal person too. But you know, she gets possessed and goes. All <laughs> well, yeah, she stuff. stops being that much human. Yeah, we have some stuff in here about you know they start to figure out who Zool is and that whole hierarchy of gods and all the rest of this and. And uh, Bill Murray gets uh, her to agree to go on a date so they can talk about why Zul is in her fridge. <laughs> the part I love here is now we bring in the government regulations, you know, as if uh, proton packs that are nuclear accelerators should be regulated. <laughs> you know, the best, uh, you know, the best slimy actor of all time shows up, you know, William Atherton. So he plays Walter Peck, right? Yeah. And he was, yeah. he played uh the the really bad or slimy guy also in Die Hard, if you recall. And he has That's actually right. made... A career out of this role and i i, I think he enjoys it i, I like act there are a lot of actors like this they're like you know what yeah i always play the bad guy and you know what i get work <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and you yeah. know i have a paycheck and a house and you know so, um sometimes you know you're so, just the right kind of person for something so one of the interesting things about this is that the you know the arch villain the bad guy is like uh a bureaucrat um using <laughs> red tape and green um, you know, environmental <laughs> <Yeah>. regulations to <laughs> oh, to yeah. shut down a, a thriving business that's doing important mm-hmm. work, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, at the, there is that the shade cast at the at the sort of bumbling academics who don't, you know, who are afraid of the real world because in 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 real life people expect results. So <laughs> you know, you, you you're a libertarian, actually, right? Did we, was this pressing your libertarian buttons? Were you like going, yes? Oh yeah, yes. I, you know, this, to me, this is the documentary part of this film. You know, small small business people trying to improve the world, getting screwed by the government. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, but their problem is, you know, and getting to that environmental thing, and and it is a brilliant way to bring in the environmental thing, which was, I mean, certainly a a big part of things back then, but not as much as today is that they have this ghost containment unit in their building and it's totally full, right? And so basically they're at about, you know, this thing's about to explode at the point that uh, Walter Peck shows up. And uh, you have the great uh, Harold Ramis line in here, you know, if normal paranormal activity levels is a Twinkie, we're experiencing a Twinkie that's 35 feet long and weighing 600 pounds, <laughs> which, which also <laughs> ties to the uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man when he shows up. Right? <laughs> and uh, so they kind of, you know, chase off Walter Peck, I think, but they actually are, you know, in trouble. I mean, they are about to have a big problem. At this point, we mentioned, you know, Sigourney Weaver gets taken over. <laughs> she's this weird scene where she's in her place and these hands come out of the chair and sort of grab onto her and then she's wheeled to the fridge. Yep. Possessed. She gets possessed. <laughs> the hands coming out of the chair, I, I remember that as being one of the creepier scenes in the movie. I, uh, 
Uh, it's not a very long, I mean, you don't see a whole lot of it, but it just, I don't know if most people would be as disturbed by it, but I, I found it a pretty good effect. Mm. Well, and as yeah. with some other things with, with her character here, there's sort of a sexual element to that. So there's this real connection between, you know, her paranormal experiences and, and sex that's interesting. She so, does get sexier when she's possessed. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> She certainly gets more interested in uh, uh, Bill Murray. <laughs> uh, yeah, now we yeah. have, you and know, but Bill, Murray, but Bill Murray shows himself to be a gentleman then, doesn't he? I know. That's and a real yeah. surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, there's a demon dog crashes Rick Moranis's, uh, you know, uh, tax write-off yeah. party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, well, I was going to say, that's, you're going to say the same thing, I'm sure, which is that that's when we get to, I think, his his best scene, yeah, where he gets, like, chased out of his party and through the streets and ends up um, running to the the restaurant, banging on the glass and sliding down. And, and you know, that's where, you know, Rick Moranis just nails that scene. It's it's so funny, but so overwrought. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, my, my brother actually went to that restaurant um, right. um, and was so happy to, to go to the Ghostbusters restaurant um, <laughs> a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, he can, so both of them have now been taken over. And one of the things I love is that it doesn't change Moranis. He's still a nerd. Now he's just a demon nerd. Because, <laughs> you know, he explains who all the different gods are and who's there and this and that. It's, <laughs> yeah, he's meant to be sinister and menacing, but he, it, it's, it's hard for Rick Moranis to carry that off. And I guess, you know, the plot we kind of figure out over time here is that there's a well, there's a key master and a gatekeeper. <laughs> and so Sigourney Weaver's the gatekeeper, and she's looking for the key master, which is Moranis. So they're supposed to get together. In the meanwhile, she's with Bill Murray. And this is where we talked about it. She's like, you know, I want you inside me. <laughs> I love his line there, too. And this is where he's saying he's kind of being a gentleman. I, I think there's already a person or two in there. <laughs> but yeah, you wouldn't, you would expect, based on everything we've seen so far, that he would take advantage that situation and yeah and it's really interesting yeah, that he yeah. doesn't yeah yeah well and, and yeah, i think she's, that's actually she's acting very very weird <laughs> <laughs> but i i think that's required for them to get together in the end like he there has to be a point where he was not a bad person because otherwise she's just falling for a scam artist right i mean yeah yeah, yeah that's true that's true yeah and uh, she floats in the air and rotates over her bed. And this was actually the trick that Reitman had learned from Doug Henning, <laughs> how to how yeah. to uh, float a person. So again, today you would just CGI it, or or today also, you know, now we have wire work, we you know that we've imported from Hong Kong and stuff. But at that time they didn't have it, so he was using the old fashioned uh, kind of magic trick for that. Mm. Oh, how did they do that? Is it telling? <laughs> uh, oh, basically, <laughs> there's a brace around her, you know, that's that's working with, and the whole the whole trick is to you, you, so what you do in magic is you do what's called a, a proof, which is you do something that proves that there's nothing holding them up, even mm. though there actually is. So you have to find, you know, some way to do that. And obviously in a movie, it's much easier because you can just choose your angles and stuff. But when you see magicians like Doug Henning do it on stage, that's why they bring out these hoops and bring it around the person. And all this is theoretically they're moving the hoops in a way that it would be impossible for there mm -hmm. to be what's obviously there, which is <laughs> this brace yeah. that's holding them up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, Moranis is the key master and he's running around New York telling everybody he finds, <laughs> including a horse. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Uh, and I love it because the cop picks him up and brings him to the Ghostbusters headquarters. And they have so much <laughs> stuff going on. The receptionist is like, are you dropping off or picking up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is when I kind of mixed up earlier. Um, this is when Walter Peck insists that they cut the power to the ghost containment system. Right. Yeah. So he's right that there's a problem, but his solution is really bad. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, oh, here, your nuclear power plant. I think we need to cut the power to it. It's like, no, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> so, you know, ghosts escape. <laughs> we had general chaos in the streets. Uh, there's a great shot of a zombie cab driver here. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think it might be in these scenes. I'm not certain, but I think it's somewhere around here where you see. Uh, one of the buildings in New York uh, has, they're called ghost signs, like the faded old painted advertisements that used to be on buildings. Um, and there's one for Stay Puffed Marshmallows uh, in there somewhere. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so it's that scene that really catalyzes the climax of the movie. Yeah, right. Like things, things really start to heat up then and right. it starts we start getting towards right. I mean, the, this movie is, is very distinctly cut into thirds, right? Yeah, that introductory point. You then have the middle portion where they're just kind of workaday guys, and now hell has literally been released, and that's the rest of the movie. <laughs> and they need to save the city. Yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> and one of the things I love here is that Rick Moranis manages to find Sigourney Weaver, and she's blown a huge hole in the side of the building. <laughs> and now, so Bill Murray couldn't score with her, but now Rick Moranis does actually score with her. <laughs> of course, he, yeah. was the one he was originally trying to. <laughs> so yes. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah, and she's she's sort of so like when they when they're kissing and stuff like that, like she's so powerful, yeah. And he's like he's like a little rag doll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Ghostbusters get arrested and taken to the mayor's office. <laughs> and this is one of those great um, uh, bits that uh, the you know the black Ghostbuster gets. <laughs> he talks to the mayor. Says, "I've seen shit that would turn you white." <laughs> <laughs> And we get the classic line about Gregory Peck, uh, not Gregory Peck, uh, Walter Peck. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, is that true? It's true. This man has no dick, <laughs> which is his great timing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, one of the cool things about it, as you say, um, Venkman has to have that little bit of character development, you know, because mm -hmm. he. And you know, it's not a it's not a serious movie. It's so, but without without that little bit of um, authenticity or something, it, it would have been missing. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. a little a little jigsaw piece. And as as you say, you know, he he's kind of shows himself to be a good guy and a little bit sensitive. And there's something underneath just that sort of um, blase, um, cheesy con man type type exterior. And, mm. uh, and I think that's developed as you get into the, the sort of climax because, because they do have to take these extraordinary risks to, and put them to, to, you know, to right. save the city. But uh, there uh, is another element there I hadn't noticed until my last watching of it, which is there is a bit of a shallow aspect of Sigourney Weaver because originally she's not interested in him at all and she turns him down. But as she's watching them get famous for their ghost catching, she starts to suddenly get much more uh, interested. Like the fame mm -hmm. is a turn on for her. So that was kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Doesn't it? Given what you explained before about how she's, she's, she's too high class for, for, you know, <laughs> right, and right. She, she's, she's aware of it. You know, she treats, <laughs> she treats, um, 
um, little what's his name um, totally. uh, as uh, as a servant. Yeah, Rick Moranis is a little right. servant because because she's a she's a blue blood. She's an she's an aristocrat. Um, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So I mean, basically, we work towards our our climax here, right? Where they're end up at the top of the building, and we get the I guess the the god we've been waiting for, Gozer, who's this very punk woman. I think she was uh, like some kind of European athlete or something that they'd seen. So they put her in the movie. She was pretty compelling. Um, yeah, she was like wrapped in glad wrap or something. Or similar, <laughs> I don't know what you call it in America. Um, but um, yeah, she was a, just a interesting character, just just visually. Like it, it just it didn't it just sort of came out of nowhere, didn't it? Yeah, and it's it's a very very eighties kind of look too. That's I true. think it's yeah, definitely yeah. a punk rocker, you know, or heavy metal band sort of yeah. sort of thing. Like, she she would have done well in um oh Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. kind of Blade Runner vibes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of course, she gets the classic line, choose the form of your destruction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I forget which one of them. Oh, let's see. Who is Ray? Is it the. Ray is Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he was the one who, who thought of Stay Puff Marshmallow. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, so we get the giant Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, which was a pretty amazing special effect for the time you know now it's the kind of thing that a 10 year old could do on their computer but <laughs> at the time uh that was a pretty big deal and you know we get lots of marshmallow goo all over the place when <laughs> they blast it yeah, including all over walter peck so he had yeah. that coming <laughs> no, that's it he gets his comeuppance getting covered in marshmallow <laughs> and murray gets his kiss with sigourney weaver <laughs> so, yeah. and our movie is over <laughs> That's right. Mm. She's a dog. She's a dog. Well, she he was he was still okay with that even when she was right. a dog. But fortunately, she's not a dog anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A guy and I have talked a lot on different both TV shows and movies. Like I just really respect any movie that doesn't waste any time. And you know, you couldn't yeah. find thirty seconds in this film that you could pull out. I mean, there's just nothing wasted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no. Me, me too. And that's that's really why I chose it. Because I mean, there were so many reasons. One, I just love it. One, it was a big. Uh, it's another reason is it was just a big part. Like I grew up with it, so I've just got this kind of affection for it. It's the it's the eighties <laughs> for me, which I barely remember. I was young, um, and and the ghost Ghostbusters kind of kind of defines it. But not that not that I know anything about script writing or how movies are made or whatever. But when I watched it, probably probably wasn't until the fourth or fifth time that I just began to appreciate. Gee, this is a just a well-made movie. Doesn't waste any time. Moves it moves moves the um, whole story along at this great pace. Every line is is basically funny, right? There's just <laughs> no wasted dialogue. Um, all the characters are great, um, and the acting is just amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, even like, like you know, yeah. Annie Potts, who's the receptionist, and I mentor her a few times. I mean, she's a great character, and and she probably has three or four lines in the whole film, you know. Yep. But you totally yep. understand her, you know who she is. She's and she also has that edge you talked about. I mean, she's not mm-hmm. an airhead, and she's both skeptical of what's going on, but she's really excited when they actually start to get business, you know. So that's yeah. kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She's, no, you're right. Every character has that kind of brittle edge to them a little bit you know and i don't know am i being nostalgic or (laughs) do a lot of movies tend to lack that these days you know like 
Yeah, and I think that sort of, and of course, that's the kind of role that the Walter Peck character there has. To, that he's the one person who's intended to be like just bad, right? Just and there's no redeeming quality to him. But everybody else is that combination of they have an edge, but also there's some kind of sincerity. Yeah. Oh, them? look, they're right. all yeah, they're, they're charming, but they're all. They're not healthy or something. You know, they're, 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 they're flawed in some way. Yeah. 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 yeah it is true. I'm not sure you could point to the health care, healthy character and all this. I mean, probably <laughs> the most rationally secure actually is Rick Moranis, right? I mean, he's got his life in order. He knows what he wants <laughs> yeah. to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. just, that's right. It was totally, he was totally an innocent victim in all of this. He was having his party. They were going to play Parcheesi and, uh, <laughs> this big freaking dog. <laughs> Winston seems pretty grounded too. You know, he knows that he's there just for a paycheck. But uh, that's you know, yeah, that's true. It. Yeah, he, he's grounded. He, he's uh, there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah, but um, but yeah, the main characters, including Sigourney Weaver, as you noticed, uh, just have that have that edge to them, and that that really that really helps it. Like the the, the humor is, you know, it's that it's not. It's not, it's not that sort of feel good humor in a way. Like it, like it does make you feel good. It's a really positive movie, but mm. there's an edge to every joke. You know? Yeah, there's um, <laughs> there's a lot of dark and cynical humor in this, which is one of the reasons that I've enjoyed it so much over the years. Because of that kind of humor tends to register well with me. I, uh, I tend to yeah, enjoy yeah, it. yeah, me too. So, what do you guys think of uh, Ghostbusters Two? I'm trying to think. Like, I saw it maybe once a long time ago and it didn't, you know, it just didn't have this kind of impact on me, but I, I, I couldn't be fair about it. Probably now, so. No, I'm you. in the same boat. I, I saw it once or twice. That was such a long time ago. I can't remember much about it. And, um, I just know, I don't, don't feel we're great. I don't, yeah. 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 I haven't actually seen that for years. Um, I remember enjoying it. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as, as the first one. But there were some things that I enjoyed. I remember there was a scene of the Titanic reaching the dock after <laughs> many decades, uh, which was kind of funny, I thought. But uh, also the character of, uh, what is it, Vigo the Carpathian. He, uh, I think he was voiced by Max von Sydow, even though the actual visual actor was somebody different. And uh, there, there were things I liked about it, but there's not nearly the... I haven't seen it as many times as Ghostbusters, but uh, there's also just not as much that stands out in my memory as the original one. His son um, mm. di directed Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, which I also haven't seen. So <laughs> but it is interesting how this series is keeps trying to be a, an ongoing franchise. And <laughs> keeps popping up every few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The afterlife, from what I've heard about it, it sounds more like a uh, sort of wholesome family type movie, and uh, that that sounds like kind of a betrayal to me. <laughs> I might still yeah. watch it one of these days, but it doesn't sound like it's quite in the same tradition as the earlier ones. Yeah, yeah. Now my my daughter actually watched that recently, and she recommended it to me. Oh, Dad, you should watch it. It's really good. I was like, uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, I think, uh, look, it's the perennial problem, isn't it? They, they produce an amazing movie, right? Right. Uh, not right. just this one, but there are other ones. And then there is, there's such a strong, uh, incentive to 
franchise this and and do something this more is, with this success. One of the things I respect about, say, Spielberg versus Lucas is Spielberg has had multiple huge, huge hits in his career, completely different. And he always went on and did something else. Lucas got his big hit and just hung on and was bitter about it, right? This is ruining my life. I need to do, you know, small personal films, et cetera. And it's like, well, why don't you go do them? (laughs) Spielberg did. (laughs) And even uh, what's the Godfather? um, Francis Ford Coppola? Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola also decided to go off and do small films. And he did, and not a lot of people watched them. But he did, you know, um, and he was another example we talked earlier where I think Coppola just had the culture nailed for a while and then just Mm. lost it, right? Just couldn't make a film that could appeal to anybody. Mm. Yeah, there was the era, the 1970s was an amazing era for films. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of only realized belatedly just how many many amazing films were, and I guess early 80s too. Well, and someone like Coppola, talk about that streak, you know, you have, Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather 2, and I'm spacing other, you know, he did a couple other films in there that were all just incredible. You know, again, you yeah. just had that period where every Didn't single one is a gem. Apocalypse Now also. Yeah, Apocalypse Now. And I think that that was kind of the breaking point, I think. And if you watch, there's a brilliant documentary his wife did about making that movie called hmm. Hearts of Darkness. I think he just lost it at that point. I mean, it was so hard to make that yeah. film, you know. As they described it, it was literally like going through Vietnam. <laughs> and, oh, wow. uh, yeah. you know, everything he did after that just didn't match up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, right, you know, so... it happens, doesn't it? Nobody can keep firing on all cylinders forever. And, um, oh, sure. and I think that's okay, you know. But, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Some movies are just click or concepts even. Could be a book. Are just single pieces. You know, you mm-hmm. can't you can't add right. to them. I just feel like it's impossible to. It would have been impossible to make a Ghostbusters 2, you know. Like right. uh, just impo- like there's no way for that to happen, but of course it's totally possible to make uh, Godfather too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and uh, I, I, I it was good. So you know, like I kind of respect that when you know it, I'll, I'll, I don't mind sequels, I don't mind franchises, whatever. When when it's clear that that's that's the idea from the beginning. So mm-hmm. this this new science fiction movie, you know, Dune has has come out relatively right. recently. Have you guys seen that? I did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I saw now, it at uh, a drive-in and everything just looked kind of <laughs> sepia-toned. <laughs> I think that's the definite. Well, I think the director would be maybe happier if he watched it on an iPhone. <laughs> <the only time>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've read those. I've read those dude books um, several times. Uh, so I'm a big, big fan of the story. And you know, that's that'll be a that'll be, a, in my opinion, a great set of. Although movies. I, I'll uh, say though. A mistake I've seen both in product development when I worked in that and in movies and and such is that it's always a mistake when they assume it'll be a franchise and they don't earn it first. So, for example, a really great example of this is a film called Remo Williams. Uh, So there's this huge, huge book collection about this spy guy, you know, who's a really hard-bitten spy, et cetera, Remo Williams. And so uh, they did it actually with um, the actor we saw in Tremors guy, uh, I'm spacing on his name, but um, who was uh, Kevin Bacon's friend? Um, Earl, well, Earl was the character's name, uh, yeah. and I can't recall. 
what the actor's name was. Fred Ward. Was it Fred Ward? Okay. Yep. <laughs> he um, so he played Remo, but they called it Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah. No, nah, just call it Remo Williams and see if anyone comes to the film. I agree with you there. I've never heard true. of it. <laughs> yeah, well, it did not do well. It's a, and there's some fun things in it, but uh, it's also got some problematic elements. But anyway, okay. So you know, normally at the end of these, we ask uh, if something was worth watching. I think that's, uh, uh, I think most of us would classify it as one of the most worth watching uh, films, right? So a required yeah. watching, maybe even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of my top three favorite movies featuring Bill Murray in New York. <laughs> okay <laughs> that's a very specific genre <laughs> yeah. yeah i look this would be my top you know top top five top 10 entertaining movies um ever i'll go back to the original reason i i suggested it which is that like in some ways it's easier to make a an arty deep kind of movie mm. you know um yeah. uh, because you can, you've almost got this permission structure to have these long drawn out scenes and, yeah, you know, stuff that's said or stuff that isn't said and spending this, you know, whatever, 20 seconds on a, on a facial expression or, you know, you know, those movies can be good, but, you know, this is, you know, movie, I think the brilliance and the absolute expertise and, and craft that goes into making something like Ghostbusters can, People can kind of miss that a little bit because it's just this, you know, it's just like to see it as a lighthearted bubblegum type thing. Um, But for me, it's just, it's, you know, it's on the same level as as, as serious movies like The Godfather's Sake. One -hmm. of the things I think is remarkable is that most 80s comedies, even the other ones that Redmond did, we, we talked about like Meatballs and Stripes, you could go back and kind of watch them, but they are of their time. And somehow, Ghostbusters did not incorporate some of the absolute tropes of all comedies in the 80s. For example, they don't have the gratuitous topless shot. Yeah. You know, Sigourney Weaver or someone. They don't have any misogyny. Yep. And that was like de rigueur of all those films. So somehow, (laughs) this one film, even by filmmakers who had done that stuff, escaped that. And I think that's almost a miracle, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, it's a cliche, isn't it? But that's one of the defining things of when a, a piece of work sort of goes to that next level of being being art, where it's clearly, you know, it's clearly of its time. You can you you can tell when it's made, um, mm-hmm. but it's not limited by it. It's it's just it's just as great thirty years later. There's there's nothing about it that sort of cr- that gives you that sort of cringe. That, <laughs> that that most things that are um, so culturally localized tend to do. Yeah, so that's a mysterious thing for me. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is that is one of the big flags where you go, this is this is next level. This is special. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, well, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh, so I have a pseudonym on Twitter, which is Arthur C. Dent. Uh-huh. And uh, that's... Um, because uh, my favorite, my favorite um, um, sort of sci-fi comedy, uh, mm-hmm. um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, main character of that, and uh, yeah, our podcast is uh, at Guru's Pod, also on Twitter. If you want to check us out, well, thank you very much. And um, yes, thanks. 
Thanks for having me, guys. It's really we good. We don't have some great ending here. <laughs> no, no, just try to that's, yeah. that's the way we do it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's all we'll do. And then the first time that, uh, that, that, uh, that Ramos sat down to talk about it, he was fully conversant with, that, with, all, with all of the original material that was going through my mind when, when I wrote the first script, which is, you know, the, the history of mediumship. Mm -hmm. He knew who Madame Blavatsky was, the psychics. He knew who the Fox sisters were. He was aware of all these names of, of, of Swedenborg, of all the spiritualism, the spiritualist movement at the turn of the century. Also, Zachariah Sitchin and... Uh, ancient uh, biblical myths and so his frame of reference was massive and he got all the references he knew in the original script he uh he he knew what i was trying to trying to do there by bringing in the uh the vernacular and the real science of, of the paranormal into into a comedy so although he did not believe in the afterlife he did uh, have a great sense of uh who the operators were in spiritualism at the turn of the century from conan doyle to uh Crooks and Lodge and all the scientists who were researching uh, consciousness after death. Harold knew all about him.